We thought we'd save the. We thought we'd save the most profound one for the, uh, for the last one. I find in different words to say what really smart people say with a lot of big words. But that's that's really uh, that's really the question: uh, Is there a God? And as we uh, start this morning, as we begin with the beginnings, uh, for about a year or so in the book of Genesis, uh, you cannot. Uh, enter into this conversation. You cannot enter into this uh, book without passing through the gate of the first four words, uh, in the beginning, God. So uh, we're going to be Hebrew students this morning. Uh, we're going to, I'm going to teach you how to, how to say this in Hebrew, just to kind of get the juices flowing going just a little bit. And remember, you have to read uh, from right to left. Okay, so just go ahead and read out loud. That's from right to left. Go ahead and Okay, I'll help you just a little bit. Okay, now, when you speak Hebrew, you got to roll your R's a little bit like that, okay? So you got to just lose yourself a little bit. Don't worry about the people around you. Let's just have a little fun with this, okay? Burei. Burei. There you go. Burei shahit. Burei shahit. Burei shahit bara. Burei shahit bara. Burei shahit bara Elohim. Elohim. Very good. In the beginning, God. You guys are now fluent in Hebrew. You can take that uh, wherever you would like to. The beginnings. That's what the book of Genesis is all about. And today, uh, I'm excited because we begin a fascinating journey through this first book of the Bible, which talks about beginnings. It talks about Burei Shahit, the beginning, and that beginning is God. When we look at Genesis, we're going to see the beginning of the cosmos and all of its beauty and all of its mystery. We're going to see the beginning of mankind and what uh, what C.S. Lewis called its glorious ruin. We're going to see the glory of mankind being created in the image of God and what that means. We're also going to see the fall and the devastation that sin brings about. And so we're going to see the beginning of mankind and all of its glory and all of its ruin. We're going to see the beginning of human relationships. We're going to see love and hatred, a new life and loyalty, as well as jealousy and unbridled ambition and murder. We're going to witness the inauguration of friendship and intimacy, as well as animosity and betrayal. Genesis introduces us to the family of mankind and the family of the promise. It ushers in the beauty of marriage and the abuse of that same holy institution. Genesis is about beginnings. But primarily, Genesis, as well as the rest of the Bible, as we see in the very first phrase of the first verse, is about God. Uh, In its most basic form in the Hebrew, uh, the word is El, which we got towards the end, Elohim. And if you look up at the Hebrew, and remember we're reading from right to left, you see that X about two-thirds of the way down with those dots underneath it and that squiggly line, that's the Hebrew for El, the most basic fundamental name for God. Now, as we go through the book of Genesis, other adjectives will be, uh, will be, will be added on. Uh, magnifications of this name will be added. We're going to see terms like the Holy One, the One who is Almighty, the God who provides, the One who is strong to save, Lord and King, God my Savior, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the One who is the Rock, and the fortress, the uh, the ancient 
of days. We're going to have all kinds of descriptive terms about God, but from the very first phrase, this work claims as its central focus God. And if you're going to study the Bible accurately, perhaps you've never done that in your life. Perhaps you've, you've never picked up a Bible and really looked at it. But if you're going to study Scripture accurately, you must understand that it is not a book primarily about mankind. Now, that seems odd because part of the message of Scripture, one of the most substantial messages of the Scripture, is a message of salvation. It's a message of, of, of grace, and how God has redeemed us. And we will certainly see that in Genesis. But, but this book, this writing is a book about God. He is the central focus. And so we have to look at it through that lens. To do any otherwise would be to misunderstand and ultimately to misinterpret the message of Scripture. Which leads me to the question as I was thinking about how to introduce this series and what to kind of cover this morning by the way of foundation, it seems to me that the question becomes, uh, what kind of God will we meet in the pages of Genesis? Uh, What is his character? And and maybe even more importantly, what's his attitude towards me? If he really does exist, uh, if he really is that that spark that caused the Big Bang, so to speak, and one of the comments that was on the video, then, then what does he think about me? Is he distant? Is he disinterested? Does he have have bigger fish to fry, so to speak? Is he angry with me over the times when when I fail morally, when I don't do the things I ought to do? Or is he rather kind with me and perhaps somewhat benevolent, kind of like a grandpa who slips you a dollar or a piece of candy when mom or dad isn't looking? Is he wrathful? Is he vengeful? What kind of God? Who is this God of the Bible? Well, this morning, what I'm going to do, simply centering in on this phrase, in the beginning, God, is I'm going to to offer you five observations about the God we're going to meet in Genesis. This certainly does not exhaust the list. Uh, If you go home today and begin to read Genesis, which I truly want to encourage you to do and hope you will every day uh, read some portion of Genesis, you're going to find other aspects of God. These are not the only five, but they're foundational, I think, in helping us understand the God of Scripture. So these are my observations about Genesis. I'm not going to turn to a lot of verses like I typically do. You see the whole Scripture reading there in front of you right now, uh, so you don't have to go anyplace else in your Bibles. But I do think that is important. Uh, that we get some background, some some foundational information about this God as we launch this series. So before I jump into that, let's pray for just a second. Father, it really is true that the first four words are the dividing line. In the beginning, God. That's either true or it's false. And our faith stands or falls on the accuracy of that statement. Father, we can't step into a study of this word and assign it just some, some moralistic um, identity. It's not just about how we should live. It's not just about keeping the Ten Commandments or, or loving our neighbor as ourself or uh, being fair and honest with other people. There are ethical teachings in this book, but Father, that is not the lens through which we must gaze. It will not give us a clear understanding We will only have a warped and distorted view unless we understand that this is revelation. This is is an opening up of the truth about who you are. This is a book about you and your work. And it does have eternal significance for our lives. But Father, uh, let us not make the mistake of putting ourselves at the center of this story. 
but rather help us to see you as the primary focus. And as we see that focus, then our identity becomes clearer and our relationship with you makes sense. And we can begin perhaps for the first time to enjoy what it means to be in a relationship with the God of the universe. Father, forgive me for my sin. Don't let me stand in the way of what you want to teach us this morning. Lord Jesus, would you come and would you speak your word to us? We pray in your name. Amen. Well, again, just kind of foundational, five observations about the God that you're going to meet, we're going to meet in Genesis. The first is this, that this God is a self-existent living God. He is a self-existent living God. He is not part of the cosmos, nor is he dependent upon any part of creation or any part of the physical universe for his being. When uh, Moses, and, and, and we won't get to Moses in, Genesis, Moses in Genesis, he's later on in Exodus, but if you recall, if you've ever read where Moses meets God at the burning bush, and in this conversation, Moses says, what is your name? Very common question. If you meet somebody and you're being introduced to them, you offer your name and you ask their name in return. So nothing unusual about that. But God replies to Moses, Moses, my name is I am. Not I was, uh, not I will be, but I am. I am the eternal, ever-existent, living God. Therefore, we need to understand that right from the outset, the Bible rejects uh, naturalism. Naturalism is the metaphysical position that nature is all that there is, and that all basic truths are truths that can be found in nature. If you can't find it in nature, you can't see it with the visible eye, then it is not true. The Bible will reject that out of hand because God cannot be seen, and yet he claims to be at the center of our existence. There was a uh, professor recently that was uh, released from his position at Iowa State. He was one of the leading uh, faculty members in the science department at Iowa State, but he was open to the idea of intelligent design, which says there's someone or something behind the Big Bang, that there's something that put all of this in motion. There is a greater power, and he was open to that. And there was a, another faculty member that led a charge to have him dismissed, and that faculty member who got him dismissed from his post was the professor in charge of the religious studies at Iowa State University. There's a perfect example of somebody who looks at the scriptures and rejects the notion of God. Friends, you don't have to agree with the Bible. Nobody here is going to twist your arm. Nobody here is going to force this upon you. God is not going to drop out of heaven and demand that you accept this, but you must understand to view the scriptures in any other way than as describing a self-existent living God is to misrepresent and to misunderstand what is said. We also reject, or Scripture also rejects this notion uh, of George Lucas's The Force uh, theology. You know, George Lucas, who, great movies, Star Wars movies, love the Star Wars movies, but the whole premise was there's this force out there, and it's nebulous, and it's kind of all over the place, and if you just pull it into yourself and, and use it for good, then you will be successful. God does not have a personality. God does not, does not have a, an individual identity, but rather it's kind of this matter that's out there everywhere. That is not the God of the Bible. God is a holy God in the purest sense of the word. Holy means set apart and above. And God is set apart from his creation. He is above his creation and he is self-existent and living. The second thing that I think we will see as we go throughout Genesis that is proclaimed very clearly is that this is the only God. There are no other gods 
beside him. There are other spirits in the spirit world, and we will certainly uh, come to meet some of them pretty early on in Genesis chapter 3. But there is only one God. And this is unique to ancient writings. Most ancient writings have in, within them, whether they're from uh, Babylonia or Syria or some other part of the ancient world, have multiple gods. Uh, the god of, of the sun, the god of the moon, uh, the god of the harvest, the god of fertility. And depending on your circumstances and your situation, you better make sure that you are praying to the right god. Don't, don't get the sun god mixed up with the water god. Don't get the moon God mixed up with the God of the harvest. You have to to pray to the right one. And scriptures teach from the very beginning, from the most ancient of human history, that there is one only true God. If you've ever read the, the book of Jonah, you know that Jonah was a prophet. And God said, hey, go over here to Nineveh. I want you to offer prophecy. And Jonah got on a ship that was going the opposite direction. And a great storm breaks out on the sea to kind of get Jonah's attention just a little bit. And all the sailors in Jonah 1 are praying to their different gods. They're praying to a variety of gods. And they come to Jonah and say, you know, whatever gods you know, would you pray to those as well? And here's how Jonah replies. I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Unheard of in any other religion. It was this teaching that started at the very beginning of Genesis that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is no other God. He is the only God. The third observation is this, that this God is perfect. His character has no flaws or shortcomings, which means that that there's nothing that he cannot do if it is within his will and his purpose. And whatever he does, Uh, has no imperfections. He is never motivated by evil. He always is motivated by what is righteous and what is good and what is true. His decisions and his choices are always right. Now, this might be the first place where you say, now, I I was with you up until this moment. You know, okay, God is God is self-existent. I'll give you that. He's out there somewhere. Uh, He's the only God. Okay, I can buy into that. But, But what do you mean he's perfect? That everything he does uh, is, is the right thing to do. This doesn't match with my experience. Uh, I think I've experienced something radically different than what you're talking about. I got my wife a card recently, and there's a couple standing at the escalator at the mall, and there's an escalator going up and an escalator going down, and there's a sign above the escalator, and down the, the sign that has the arrow pointing down says women's shoes. And then there's another sign with an arrow pointing on the up escalator, and it says tools. And so you can imagine that the picture here is they're trying to decide which way to go. But the cartoon has a guy's kind of, you know, the, the little circle thing with a thought in his mind. And in his mind, the arrow pointing up to tools says heaven. And women's shoes says hell. Okay? You kind of look at it and go, it really depends on your experience. It, it really depends on, on how you look at this. And your experience might say to you, I don't know that God's perfect. I'm not sure that everything he does really is done with right motives because I look at my life and I see some things that don't seem to be fitting in this picture. Well, I want you to, we're going to get to that. We're going to get to it this morning, but I want you to hold that thought for just a minute because I'm going to try and begin at least to set a foundation to answering that question in my other two observations about this God in the book of Genesis. But I want to acknowledge that that is a fair question. I want to acknowledge that you have every right to say, wait a second, I, if God's perfect and I'm looking at my life, there seems to be a disconnect. I, you, you've come to the right place. We're glad you're here to try and wrestle with that question. Don't think there's something wrong with you if you haven't quite jumped on board with the perfect God. That, that's okay. 
Because the fourth observation is this, that this God that we will meet in Genesis is a relational God. From beginning to end, God is engaged with humanity. He's engaged with humanity as its creator. He's engaged with humanity as the one who sustains life in giving men and women a purpose for living and offering his friendship. Now, the way we'll see this relationship played out happens in a lot of different ways, but in a couple of weeks, we're going to look specifically at the creation of of man and woman. We're going to look at God breathing into them the breath of life. And what that verse means, and we'll talk about more, is that God gave man a soul and a spirit. God gave man a consciousness that is different than any other mammal, animal, reptile, insect walking around on the planet, that God made us to be in relationship with him. As much as we love our pets, as much as we love to watch little dolphins swimming around at Disney World, they do not have a soul in the same way that man has a soul. They were not created to be in a mental cognitive relationship with God. We have been created that way because God is a relational God. And he gives man a soul. He gives man a spirit. He gives man the opportunity and the ability to choose, to think for themselves, to create to design, to enter into relationship with one another. And we all do that, don't we? We all enter into relationship to one degree or another with other folks. There's some people in your life that you see and you're like, oh, I'm so glad to see you. Can't, can't wait to spend time with you. And there may be a couple others, a handful of other folks in your life that maybe you're not quite that enthusiastic when you see them. Maybe you've been in relationship with them and, and there's been a little bit of a rub or a little bit of, of tension. I remember when, when I first laid eyes on Cindy, I thought, I really would like to get to know her a little bit. I'd, I'd like to spend some time with her. You know, she caught my eye. <laughs> That's a way of saying I wanted to be in a relationship with her. I think maybe the same happened with her. It might have been a little slower on her part. It might have taken her longer to get there. But God created us that way, to be in relationship with him because he is a relational God. And my fifth observation this morning is simply this. God that we will meet in Genesis, is a redemptive God. He is a redemptive God, which means he is a God who offers salvation. Because God is relational, he did not create you to be a robot. He didn't create the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, and said, okay, you, you must act this way. You have no choices to make. You simply are on my autopilot, and you will do everything the way I set it up. He gave man, he gave woman moral decision-making ability. And as we're going to see in a few weeks, when man and women ignored God's command, when man and women broke God's command and broke that relationship with him, all of creation was marred. All of creation suffered terribly when man and woman decided to reject their relationship with God and go their own way. And I mean everything. There is not one corner of the cosmos that has not been impacted whether you're talking about men and women and their relationships, or whether you're talking about the actual created order, there's not one piece of the cosmos that has not been impacted by that decision that Adam and Eve made in the garden. And that's part of the answer to how can we live in a broken world and God be perfect. Because when I say everything was broken, let me just give you a couple of examples. That Man's reasoning was broken. Man's thought process of how to to live in relationship with God, how to follow God, trust God, how to love, uh, for Adam to love Eve well and Eve to love Adam well, and to enjoy the benefit of a relationship with God, that ability was broken. 
and it's been scarred ever since. Uh, one of my good friends has been trying to get me for the last year and a half to watch Hotel Rwanda. Uh, and that friend's in the room this morning. I want you to know I watched Hotel Rwanda this week. I finally got around to it. And if you want to see how broken man is, watch a movie like Hotel Rwanda. Watch Schindler's List. <laughs> there's redemption in those movies, but there's also a picture of the depth to the, which our depravity can sink because we have broken the law of God. Not only is man's reasoning broken, but our relationships with one another are broken. As I said, there may be from time to time somebody that you see them coming down the street, you're not all that excited to see them. You know, you've had a, you've had a little bit of tension in your relationship. You have a little bit of struggle and you, you'd rather kind of be away from them. Why are those relationships a stress? Why are some relationships we have broken and sundered apart in a way that's devastating to our lives? It's because we have turned our back on God's will for our lives, on God's perfect plan for us. It is not that God is imperfect. It is that as God has allowed us to be thinking, decision-making people and our decisions and our thoughts have led us down a wrong path. Our, the elders of the church are getting ready to send out a, a letter uh, to the congregation that just encourages you if you're married uh, to, really, to really work at your marriage, to really take a good hard look at it and say, where are we struggling? Where can we, where can we maybe uh, grow and strengthen our relationship? But let's, let's pay some attention to it now. Uh, not a big plan involved in that. It's just kind of a word of encouragement. But why do we have to offer that kind of word of encouragement? Because we live in a broken world. Everything has been scarred by man's choice to move out of a relationship with God. And even our health. is not, I mean, everyone in this room is aging. You might be really young here this morning. You might be 8, 9, 10 years old or even younger than that. You have a long, long time to live as opposed to somebody like me who's really an ancient kind of guy. You know, at 50 years of age, I'm, I'm well over half my journey on this planet. And I'm eventually going to get sick and die. And the people around me get sick and they die. Why is that? Because this world is broken. And yet, in this broken world, God pursues. God creates a path of reconciliation and restoration. Because the God of Genesis and the God of the Bible is not just a God for this life and this world. He is the eternal God. Remember his name from the very, very outset, I am. God is not restricted by time, by place. He has no limitations. He is the ever-present, everlasting God who can speak his truth into our lives. And so when you say, I don't know if God's perfect because my relationship maybe with so-and-so is broken, or I don't know if God is perfect because my life hasn't worked out the way in which I would have lined it all up, I would, I would humbly and gently say to you, you've got your focus in the wrong place. The reason for brokenness is my choices and your choices. The reason for brokenness, the reason that sin has entered in the world is because our, our forebears, Adam and Eve, made a bad choice and we've had to live with it ever since. But God, from that very first moment of sin, determined that he was going to redeem the world. There may be struggle and pain now, but God will have the last word. And that last word is redemption. I believe this is the God that we're going to meet in the book of Genesis over the next year. That's why I'm excited to dig into this with you and to have uh, some fun as we go through a lot of these passages, some of which are, are a little quirkier than others. You're going to meet some very unique people in the book of Genesis if you've never read it before. But God is a redemptive God, and that is his plan. And we will see that throughout the book of Genesis. So what do you do with that this morning? Well, just a couple of thoughts before we close. One is this. If you're here today and you're a disciple of Jesus, 
You kind of tick down this list and you go, yeah, okay, Tom, I got it. I'm with you all the way. Uh, Perhaps like me, uh, you run the risk sometimes of losing some of the wonder, some of the marvel at this God, this glorious one, this holy one of Israel. And this last week, I've, I've really, you know, it's been kind of a strange week because typically you're busy doing a lot of work in the passage and you're trying to pick it apart and look at the languages and make sure you're not missing anything and you're reading lots of different books. And I've basically sat with four words all week long. In the beginning, God. I, I told Cindy the other night, I, I felt really small all week. Not physically. I know I should be smaller, but I am physically. But, but spiritually and emotionally, in a very good way, I don't mean this in a, in a, like, oh, I'm depressed, but in a very positive way, I've just reconnected with the awesomeness and the majesty and the glory of this God. And I think sometimes I become trite. I think sometimes I become somewhat uh, shallow in my understanding of my God. And my prayer and hope for, for all of us is that Uh, we maybe as disciples can refocus and see again some of the wonder, some of the marvel and the glory uh, that is his. Second person I want to offer, uh, I have three thoughts on the second thought I want to talk, offer is for the skeptic. If you're here this morning saying, you know, I'm just not sure I'm buying this. Uh, And one of the reasons I've heard that that people have offered from time to time their skepticism is, you know, religion really seems like a crutch to me. It's it's for people who are weak and they can't take care of themselves. They can't figure out their own life. They can't make their own way uh, without some kind of, you know, spiritual being that's greater to them. So they kind of create this crutch God. Uh, With all due respect, if you're a skeptic, let me suggest that you really haven't encountered the God of the Bible that you really haven't studied this book very well at all because you cannot study scripture. I don't care if you accept it or reject it. You cannot study this book and come away for one second believing that anybody would create this God. If I'm going to create a God, he's going to take care of it. My life's going to be smooth. My life's going to be easy. I'm never getting sick. I'm going to have all the money that I need. I'm going to have all, none of my friends are ever going to get mad at me. My wife's never going to be disappointed in me. My kids are going to think I walk on water. I mean, everything is going to go smoothly. I'm going to create a God that fits my image. Friends, that is not the God of this book. As C.S. Lewis says, he is not a safe God, but he is a good God. God will not be controlled. He's not my step and fetch it boy, so to speak. He is the Lord of the universe. He will not be put in a box. He will not be controlled by my whims and my wishes. He is holy. He is set apart, and he is above. And nobody who wants a spiritual crutch would create such an awesome, and in the right sense of the word, terrifying God. And one other thought to those of you this morning who may say, you know, I'm really just, I'm an agnostic. I'm an atheist. I, I really don't buy that there is a God at all. I certainly am not convinced of it to this point in my life. I want to suggest to you this morning, and first of all, I'm so glad you're here if you really think that way. Even if somebody drug you here uh, and made you, made you come, you're doing it you know, because you, you want them to, to like you a little bit more, I'm glad you're here. But I think I want to maybe beg your indulgence and offer you to switch your thinking just a little bit to that which I would argue is more accurate. It isn't a question of if there is a God. It's really a question of who is God. Because if you take God out of your life, then it's very convenient that you get to be God and you chart your own course and you make your own way 
And nobody ever is going to tell you what to do because you are now the one that's in control. And if you're here thinking that, I just want to invite you to come along the journey with us. Because the end of your story is very, very scary to me. You have no hope. You have no promise. You have no future. I respect your right to believe that, but I want to encourage you to maybe think for a second. You might not be the best God around. (laughs) There may be another one who would offer you a real hope and a real life and a real meaning. So we begin where we should. First phrase in the book of Genesis, in the beginning, God, let's pray.